You are listening to a sermon series from Open Door Fellowship Church. Good morning, Open Door. Thank you, thank you. I uh, consider it a real privilege to be up here this morning. It was not something I had been planning on or anticipating at least not until Wednesday morning of this past week. But it is a privilege. Um, It never ceases to amaze me how God works things out, even when those things involve unexpected elements. But of course, it's never unexpected to Him. So, there is that. Uh, This morning we're talking about the book of Romans. And we're going to try our best to give a synopsis of the first 11 chapters of that book. Uh, Yeah, exactly. My thoughts, exactly. Um, As as one of my professors famously used to say, you can cover anything in any amount of time if you leave enough out. And so, this morning, we're going to leave out enough that we get through it. Um, (laughs) We're shortly going to start a preaching series on Romans chapter 12 and following, and it seemed prudent to think together about the simple fact that Romans does not begin with chapter 12. Shocking, isn't it? It actually starts with chapter 1. So, um, we are this morning talking about the fact that as we look forward to our upcoming series on Romans 12 and following, it is worth our while to look back at the general overview of what Romans 1 through 11 are all about. So with that in mind, let's take a moment and pray together, and then we'll jump right into it. Gracious Father, it is a daunting task this morning to survey these chapters which obviously can bear a lot more scrutiny than we can give them today or even in our entire lifetimes because they reveal to us your magnificent plan of salvation, the incredible grace, the incredible love, the incredible provision you've made for us, for all those who trust in the name of Christ. So this morning, Father, as we look at these, I ask that you will give us wisdom, that you will give us insight, that you will give us the ability to think together your thoughts after you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a good idea to do this because Romans 12 and following is actually built upon the important truths that Paul talks about in Romans 1 through 11. It really is built on that. Now, in talking about that, I realize that there's no way that we can do justice to this material in the time we have today. We have a lot to cover, and we want to cover it quickly, but I hope coherently. I hope in a way that will enable us all together to think through the book of Romans. My thesis this morning is that Romans 12 through 16 is the logical and practical outworking 
of Paul's teaching in Romans 1 through 11. Romans 12 to 16 is the logical and practical outworking of Paul's teaching in Romans 1 through 11. The point is that Paul does not say, okay, we finished all that theological stuff, and now we're going to talk about more practical matters. The truth is that everything practical in our life in Christ is absolutely based upon the truths found in Romans 1 through 11. Just as those chapters are the theological outworking of the gospel of God, so also Paul gives us in Romans 12 through 16 the practical, logical, everyday outworking of that same gospel in our lives. If we miss that, then we've missed the very basis for Paul's instruction in the latter part of Romans. And whether or not that series actually ends up covering that whole section, we're still a little up in the air about that, but it's still true that everything Paul says in the last five chapters of Romans is built upon everything he said in the first 11 chapters. Every Christian needs to be able to work his or, way through, his or her way through the book of Romans. Learning to do so will enhance your life in Christ because it is the Word of God and because it is about the gospel in which we stand and because it is the only practical way to live as a Christian. So, the first point in the outline this morning is the gospel. As you can see from the outline, I hope you have it there and I hope you're making notes or whatever, there are seven large points in the outline this morning. And there are some subpoints under most of those that are not shown in your outline. And uh, I did the math. We have under five minutes for each one of these major points. <sighs> so I hope you're ready to listen in a hurry. Here we go. He starts out in the very first verse of the very first chapter saying, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In the first verse, the first sentence, he says, look, I'm here as an apostle, as one who's sent by God about the gospel of God. And it goes on and says, next slide here, the gospel of God through which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. And I highlighted that because what, what we're saying there is that the gospel of God is concerning his son. It's about Jesus. So, concerning his son, who was born, of a descendant, uh, born as a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and it goes on, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So look at the sense of the sentence. I left out some words just to help us trace it. The gospel of God concerning His Son declared the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then He, go, he talks about the Gentiles for a moment, and He says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So understand that Paul is saying, look, this whole thing I'm about to tell you, and it's a lot, 
It's about the gospel of God. It's about Jesus Christ, who is the center of that gospel, who was declared the Son of God, and who was proved to be that in power by being resurrected from the dead. And that we have this gospel with us, and we're taking it into a world which is hostile to it, but we are the called of Jesus Christ in that world. So Paul, in a very real sense, and it's important that we grasp this, Paul is saying, I am entrusting to you, just as God has to me, I'm entrusting the bearing of this gospel to those around you. It's yours. Take it. Do something with it. Specifically, share it. <laughs> so, that's the introduction. The gospel of God. Now, the first point... I'm sorry, there's one more thing I want to say about that. In this opening section, the first 16 verses, he ends them by saying this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul quotes this interesting little verse from Habakkuk, just to take a couple of minutes here and talk about the background of that. In Habakkuk, the prophet is given a information by God that God is going to judge Israel. He's going to bring the Babylonians in and punish them. And Habakkuk comes back and he says, but wait a minute, God, those are evil, awful people. And God says, yes, I know that. And by the way, I'm going to judge them for what they do to my people. <laughs> and Habakkuk says, okay, well, I see that, but, but here's the problem, God. While all this is going on, all this back and forth and judgment and retribution and all that, I'm in the middle of this. I'm right here. What do I do? And God's response is, my righteous one shall live by his faith. Oh, <laughs> that's not an easy answer, is it? But it's a good answer. It's the answer. Okay, so my righteous one shall live by his faith. Now, the next thing Paul does is in Romans 1 through most of chapter 3, he talks about condemnation. <laughs> Pleasant subject, huh? The very first step in revealing the gospel of God to the Romans seems a little counterintuitive. It deals with condemnation. But surely in our modern culture we can understand the need for this, can't we? Because nowadays, if you say to the average person, I'm going to talk to you about a Savior. And his, re his response is, Savior, Shmavior, I don't need a Savior. Right? I've got everything I need. There's a saying that you can't get someone saved until he knows he's lost. And that's what this section is about. It's about getting people lost. Getting them to the understanding that they are in fact lost. So Paul, among other things, says in that section, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and forfeited animals and crawling creatures. What he said is, look, 
they gave up the creator and they served something he created. By the way, there's no third option. Do you ever think about that? You either worship God or you worship something God made. Because there isn't anything else. Okay? That's what Paul's getting at there. And that's important. So, the next thing that we want to see in that section is that the whole of creation is condemned. The whole of creation is tainted by sin. And he carries the, the idea into the next chapter because he knows there are both Jewish and Gentile people reading this book. And he says to the Jews, he says, look, we have a tendency as Jews to judge Gentiles because they don't have the law. Because they don't know anything about the, com the covenant. They don't know anything about the commandments. And Paul says to them, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, but do you suppose, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, he says to them, look, you're condemning them by the law. That same law condemns you, by the way. So Jews are condemned before God. Likewise, Gentiles are condemned before God. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this actually falls in the very beginning of the section where he's going to talk about justification, but it's such a nice summary of what he just said that everyone, Jew, Gentile, everyone, indeed the whole of creation, is there's something wrong, there's something askew, and that something is sin. And he says there's only one answer to that. And that is what he talks about in justification. Romans 3.21 through 5.21, he says, look, if we all stand condemned, then what hope is there? How can an unrighteous man be declared righteous? Not just not guilty, but actually righteous. Now, there's a lot of discussion in theological circles about that issue. And of course, at Open Door and at True Face, we make a big deal about the fact that we aren't just declared righteous. We are declared righteous, but we aren't just declared righteous. Think about this. Everything God says is true, isn't it? By definition. So if God says you're righteous, guess what? You are! Ta-da! That's important. That's important. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. That's the crux of Paul's argument there. 
You see, I became a sinner just by virtue of the fact that I was born in the line of Adam. Ta-da! You become a believer by virtue of the fact that you're born in the line of God. You're now a son of God. You've been born again. You have a new nature. So this idea that it is Christ's righteousness that results in my righteousness. That's the whole key to what he says about justification. It really is. The finished work of Calvary is the whole story. There isn't a second chapter. <laughs> That's the whole thing. The next thing, the next big section of Romans that Paul talks about is sanctification. Sanctification. Such a big, wonderful word. It just means being made holy. And he has several things he says about this. In chapter 6 he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. See, if God says to me, okay, you're now in Christ. You have His righteousness. Indeed, He tells us in Ephesians that we're created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. Okay? So, here's the problem. I know that I still have a tendency to sin. I know none of you has that issue, but believe me, I do. And so I ask myself, how is it that I, who now am holy and righteous in Christ, can still deal with the fact that I want to sin? I want to do things that are contrary to God's word, to God's law, to God's will, to his heart. He says, look, something's different about you now. What's different is that now you can obey God. That's the difference. You now actually have the ability as a believer to say to God, I'm giving you my hands, my feet, my heart, my mind, all of it to serve you, to serve righteousness. I actually do have that choice now. So do you if you know Christ. So the early part of chapter 6, that's what he's talking about here. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Sure, I can still do sinful things, but I can also do righteous things because Christ is in me, because I have this new man, because he's made me new. So, that's what he talks about in sanctification. He also spends some time talking about the fact that we still have this thing, and the process of sanctification, such an interesting thing because 
I am holy and righteous in Christ, but I still have sin. So I'm still in the process of working out in my everyday, ordinary life what that looks like to live a holy life, a righteous life. So sanctification is both an accomplished fact and an ongoing process, isn't it? And here's the good news. There's a final stage to that. When we are given our new bodies and our old sinful flesh is left behind and we will be entirely, completely, utterly sanctified before Him someday. That's the good news. So in the meantime, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. He's not saying you're earning your eternal life. What he's saying is that the ultimate outcome of this sanctification is that life. It is that. It's undeniable. It's inescapable, if you will, as a Christian. So, that's what sanctification is about. Of course, in chapter 7, he has a long section about how we still kind of go back and forth with that, don't we? I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. That whole thing. But then he says, at the end of that, thanks be to God who gives us that victory. It is because of what Christ did that there is hope in that process. That it is possible to continue in righteousness, to live in holiness. It is possible. If it weren't possible, then something's wrong with our salvation. Now, the final section about salvation itself has to do with glorification. Glor that's what it's saying, glorification. Wow. Look at what he says. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is just the Hebrew word for daddy. Abba. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be, what's the word? Glorified with him. What? Wait a minute, stop, hold the phone. I've read the first part of the book of Ezekiel. I've read Zechariah, I've read Revelation, where it talks about the glory of God. Remember those passages? It talks a lot about light and thunder and flashing and brilliance and amazing things, right? I read the section in Exodus 33 where Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock and God's glory passed by. And Moses saw it. And it had such an effect upon him that when he came down, his very face was glowing. We, so that we may also be glorified with him. 
the truth is, we read those words and we have some understanding of what they might mean, but we really don't have a frame of reference for what that will really mean. We really don't. We're going to be with God. We're going to be heirs of God and fellow heirs together with Christ of God's glory. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That'll, that'll turn you into a hallelujah shouting Presbyterian if you think about it. I mean, <laughs> the truth is that God says to us, look, <clears throat> I have this plan. And this plan involves creation, it involves the fall of man, and it involves the redemption of man. And my ultimate goal is that you and I would live together, face to face, side by side, that we will know each other intimately. That's my ultimate goal. And in that process, you're going to find yourself so drawn to me, so close to me, that some of my glory will actually sort of spill over to you. You know what I mean? Isn't that an amazing thought? Wow! Wow! <clears throat> Think for a minute about that believer that you know, that friend, sort of a friend. You maybe have a problem with that person. And maybe from time to time, you just wish that person would just go away. Here's the truth. If you saw that person the way he or she will be in glory with God, your temptation would be to fall down and worship him or her. See, that's what we have to remember. Because that's where we're all headed. If you know Christ, if you've trusted him as your Savior, you're headed for glory that's not just a place, that's a state of being. Glorification. Isn't it interesting? I look at pictures of the huge Gothic cathedrals in Europe, and I see these soaring ribbed arches supporting the vaulted ceilings. And the whole idea of those is to draw our thoughts upward to heaven, right? God gives us such incredible truth here that it justifies every noble, deep theological thought that we could ever have. It's worth all of that to think about that. Yet at the same time, God still puts the cookies on the lower shelf so that even children can get them. That's the grace of God. That is the grace of God in salvation. And Paul says, I want you to see that. I want you to understand that. Look at what he says next. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. You ever thought there's going to be a day when God says to the whole of creation, see my children? 
Here they are in all their glory. Wow. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God's ultimate goal is not just to save us, it is to save the whole of creation, to undo all of the effects of sin, all of them. And he says in this same passage, it's as if the whole of creation is groaning, as if in childbirth awaiting this amazing delivery of the revealing of the sons of God. Wow. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Now, having said all of that stuff, and I wish we had time to go into, we just don't, you know, to spend more time with that because it's so cool. Paul then says, okay, look, I know that in the church at Rome, there are some Jews, there are some Gentiles. And even the Gentiles, some of them are saying, well, okay, I, I read all this, Paul, it's wonderful, but I remember all the things that God said to Abraham, all the things that he said to the children of Israel, all the promises he made to David, all the, the promises in the Deuteronomic Covenant, all those things. I see all, what about those things? What about those things? So chapters 9 through 11 of Romans answer some of those questions. What about Israel? Well, just because of the brevity of our time remaining this morning, let me make three summary points about that. Chapter 9, Paul talks about Israel stumbling over Christ. He talks about the stone which the builders rejected, the, the stumbling block, the chief cornerstone, all that. In chapter 10, he talks about the idea of God's provoking Israel to jealousy by bringing Gentiles into this place of blessing, this place of the new covenant. And then in chapter 11, he talks about their rejection and their ultimate restoration to him. That in fact, in actual fact, he will do as he promised for his chosen people in restoring them to faith in Messiah, to obediently dwelling in the land of promise, and to serving as an example to the whole world of God's eternal grace, mercy, and love. Some of the most challenging things in the book of Romans are found in this, these chapters, but they're worth spending time with because ultimately what God says there is, I am still the great God of grace. I'm the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. Then we get to Romans 12 through 16. And that's the big so what. So what? So if all of that is true, Paul, how shall we then live? Right? Isn't that what he's answering? And so we've sort of tentatively titled, I'm not sure this will end up being the title, but it probably will be, titled this series, Therefore, dot, 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 love. That what Paul is telling us here is, look, I want you to live in love. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the expression of God's heart. You see, 
these, these sections in Romans, this where he talks about very practical things, about everyday life and about relationships with each other and about enemies and about government and about all kinds of things. And what he's saying is, look, pay attention to this, first of all, because it is the Word of God. Secondly, because it is the right thing to do. (laughs) It conforms with God's character. Thirdly, and this is very important, because as believers in Christ, we can do this. We can. We have the new man. We have the ability to act in obedience to God. And lastly, because we get to do it. (laughs) Because it's the way we live out working in the heart of God. Very, very important. And that brings us full circle back to where we started. Romans 12 through 16 is the logical and practical outworking of Paul's teaching in Romans 1 through 11. There are absolutely logical, practical, everyday implications to the gospel of God, which Paul teaches in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And just to go back to where we started with the gospel, remember that last thing he said there, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 12 through 16 is about. It's about what it means that in this dark lonely world in which we live, we are light. We are the called of the Lord Jesus Christ. We absolutely live by faith. That's how it works. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, it is staggering to us what you outline in Romans, the the plan that you have for us or the whole of creation through what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. We are awestruck, as we should be. So, Father, give us the ability and the willingness to listen to your word, to spend time thinking about it, to spend time with each other talking about it, and to spend time living it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.